clap in three, two, one. Yay. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's see if I remember how to do this. <laughs> you are listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazing caribou studios. Building a huge nest like this is that you're very obvious to predators. But these ants have a very effective way of defending themselves. Watch. Mmm, <laughs> the unmistakable acrid smell of formic acid. Most ants, like their wasp ancestors, have stings, but not these wood ants. Instead of injecting poison, they squirt it, and very accurately too. Hello and welcome back to the Varmints Podcast, where every week we do a whole bunch of research to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet, one animal at a time. My name is Paul, and I am still not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I remain also not an animal expert. Welcome back from vacation, Paul. We are glad to have you back, and today we are talking about ants. But first, the news. This is Varmin's Headline News with your anchorman, some guy named Paul. Thank you, Matthew. So while people in the United States were celebrating Independence Day, people in the UK were celebrating Flying Ant Day. Nice. <laughs> and by celebrating, we really mean swatting, cursing at, and generally trying to avoid giant swarms of flying ants. <laughs> oh my gosh. Within minutes of the first sighting, social media users joined forces to warn their fellow Brits of the impending doom. They're everywhere, exclaimed one Twitter user. One landed in my mouth, wrote another. <laughs> one clearly defeated individual tweeted, It's too late for me. Save yourselves. <laughs> the swarm affected both the players and the spectators at Wimbledon. It was perfect timing. Hmm. This is happening because this is how this species of ant makes little ants. So the queens fly into the sky, they mate with different colonies, they drop back down to the ground, they try not to get eaten by birds, and the luckiest of these little ants are able to dodge death by shedding their wings and digging holes in the ground before going back into hiding to start a brand new colony. Hmm. Another effect of Flying Ant Day is drunk birds. Oh, dear. Yes, the birds will eat large amounts of the ants, and they will actually get drunk on the formic acid that the ants produce. So people <laughs> living near the beaches also had to deal with crazy seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> crazy drunk seagulls. Crazy drunk seagulls and swarms of flying ants. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah, book your, book your vacation to the UK now for Flying Ant Day. It doesn't <laughs> normally coincide with Independence Day in the US, but in 2018 it did. <laughs> How funny. 
Oh, man, there's pictures of it, too. There are little winged ants just everywhere. Now, we have a form of flying ant here in Colorado. I don't know if it's the same species or not, but uh, I can relate. Yeah, it's like a biblical plague. It is. It's like, oh, 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 so many ants. And the cats are like, yes. (laughs) Give me all the ants. (laughs) The cats eat the ants? Heck yeah, they will eat ants. They will eat ants and moths and flies and anything that's dumb enough to fly near where a cat can get home. Do you get the yearly plague of them like the UK does? I don't know, but I have definitely, I can definitely relate to like times in which there seem to be a heck of a lot of them, but I don't know if it's yearly (laughs) or if it's just something that happens every few years, like locusts or whatever. Sure. I have no idea. It's annoying, but it's only annoying for a couple of days, so. Just a reminder, everybody, to go to BlazingCaribouStudios.com for links to the audio and our show notes for today's episode. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at at Podcast, all one word, and at Podcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. I also run a Pinterest board for every single animal that we talk about. The link to that will be at the bottom of our show notes. If you want some varmints merchandise, head on over to tpublic.com and put varmints in the search space and you will get a plethora of choices for you to look at our crazy little show mascot and our great logo that's done for us by Imran Javed. So please go take a peek around. And if you like our show... Why not tell a friend about us and introduce them to the podcast? We're everywhere that podcasts are found, and word of mouth is the very best way to help us grow. All right, let's learn about ants. Let's do it. Hey! Hey! Let's go get educated (laughs) on some animals. Yes. I know you wanna. We are learning about ants today. Ants are insects of the family Formicidae, along with the related wasps and bees. Ants have been around since the Cretaceous period, so that's been about 140 million years ago. And they began diversifying after the rise of flowering plants, until today where there are more than 12,500 species that have been classified of ants. Mm -hmm. They are quite small. The smallest ant is the pharaoh ant, and it's only about 2 millimeters long. The largest ant is the bullet ant, which I'll talk about in a minute. Female bullet ants can reach lengths of three to four centimeters or about an inch and a half long. That is crazy creepy. Groups of ants are called colonies. Ant colonies range in size from just a few dozen to literally millions of individuals. They consist of sterile wingless females, most of which are workers and soldiers, some fertile males called drones, and one or possibly more fertile females called queens. Baby ants are just larvae. That's how they start. Ants are eusocial, meaning that they are highly organized. The colonies themselves are described as superorganisms because the ants appear to operate as a unified entity, collectively working together to support the colony. Ants have colonized almost every landmass on Earth. Antarctica and a few remote or inhospitable islands are the only places that don't have native ants. In some places, ants may form 15 to 25% of the terrestrial biomass. That means in some places, one in every four living things is an ant. 
The word ant is a shortening of the Middle English word amet that came from a Germanic word which I can't even hope to pronounce, which literally meant biting thing or cutter. Well, today we will talk about an adaptation that I remember from biology class, and that is that ants are farmers. So whenever somebody says ant farm, it actually brings a whole different way of thinking into my head. (laughs) A farm that's run by ants. (laughs) That's really cool. Leafcutter ants are industrious critters, and they're known for expertly carving up foliage and then carrying it back in pieces to their colony, where they create neat lines of undulating green armies. They use the leaves of these to farm fungus, which they eat, and they're essentially mushroom farmers. Herder ants, as their name suggests, tend to aphids, the little green bugs that drink plants' nutrients and are considered pests by every farmer on Earth except for their own six-legged keepers. (laughs) Ants love this sugary substance that aphids exert, and they treat the bugs as their dairy cows. So they're not just farmers. They're not just, you know, plant farmers. They're also livestock farmers. They've domesticated the aphids. Yep. And just like farming runs in human families, it does in a colony as well. When a young farmer leaves home to start a new family, he takes some seeds and some other means of growing future crops with him. A fledgling leafcutter ant queen leaves her colony with a blob of fungus in her mouth taken from the established fungal garden in her nest. And... Then the virgin queen leaps in the air for a mating flight, gathering enough of the sperms to keep laying eggs for the rest of her life, which can be as long as 10 years. And then she lands, sheds her wings, finds a burrow in the ground, and starts a new colony. That sounds very super heroic to me. Yeah. She spits out the fungal blob and then begins... It begins to grow, and the queen lays her eggs in the fungus. The larvae feed on it, and once the first worker ants hatch, they help the queen to tend the garden. So, that is uh, so cool. Scientists call fungus mycelium, a mass of thin threads. Mycelium grows on organic waste and digests it. So, the fungus-growing ants, which scientists call the attine species, have evolved to feed their fungi with biological refuse. So they compost. (laughs) Wow. Worker ants, which have strong jaws designed to clip off parts of plants, forage for leaves in the forest and then bring them to the nest. Smaller worker ants clean up the leaves, cut them into small pieces, and add their own excrements to the mix, similar to how we use cow manure in our farms. They eventually make it into a mash and fertilize it with their own feces, and then they mulch it all together into the so-called fungal matrix... A round soccer ball-like <laughs> structure that resembles a wasp nest. Wow. Then they plant it into a fungal matrix so that the fungus is incorporated within the mulch and it grows from it. The top of the garden is constantly fed by the ants and the mycelium moves its way down through the fungal ball and the ants remove the bottom part and throw it away so the garden is constantly replenished. Some types of fungi growers fertilize their gardens with just about any organic refuse found in the woods, from small bits of flowers to caterpillar droppings, anything goes. And the scientist in this article I'm quoting a little bit from says, they are more like recyclers who are recycling the debris in the forest floor. The parts of the fungus that they eat are the roundish blob structures or swellings called gongolidia, which grow around the mycelium threads and are packed with nutrients. 
ants eat the gongolidia and leave the mycelium to grow more blobs, similar to how people sometimes dig up a few potatoes but then leave the rest of the potato plant to grow more root veggies. So they've domesticated fungus in a similar way to how we domesticated many plants and similar to how human domestication of certain types of plants led to evolutionary changes for us, the ant's fungus changed too and it lost its ability to reproduce sexually. So it no longer propagates by the way of seeds or spores and it no longer produces mushrooms. The ants propagate it to and take care of the fungus garden. Wow. Yeah. The scientist says it's like citrus fruit. It produces the fruit, but not the seeds. We propagate it by grafts. That's essentially what they're doing. Right. Wow. Much the same way we keep cattle, these ants keep aphids, which drink the plant's nutrients and excrete a sugary substance called honeydew that ants eat. Some species of herder ants follow the green creatures, devouring their droppings while others milk their herds by tickling them with their antenna. (laughs) (laughs) The only difference is the milk comes out of the cow's udders while the honeydew flows out of the aphid's anus. Not that the ants seem to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. In return, ants shepherd their bug flocks to better pastures and shield them from the rain, sometimes carrying them from one plant to another. Ants care for and protect the aphids' eggs, treating them as their own and keeping them safe inside their own colonies for the winter. And when a young queen of a dairy ant colony leaves on a mating flight, she brings an aphid in her mouth to her new home. And just like humans take away their animals' freedom in exchange for care and protection, so do ants. Sometimes they bite off the aphids' wings so that the milk cows won't fly away and release chemicals that make aphids move slower, becoming more docile. To reciprocate, ants protect their livestock from predators. They attack ladybugs and they tr- that try to feast on their herds just like we would ward off a pack of wolves from our bovine beasts. And yet, much like we eat our cattle, ants sometimes devour the aphids too. It could be that the aphid population grows rather large and they are simply not needed, says the scientist, but it can also be that ants crave different nutrients at different times. The honeydew is sugar, but the aphid's body itself is a protein source. The only thing the ants haven't yet achieved is a building complex agricultural machinery to cut down on physical labor, but that's probably because they really don't need it. Researchers at Ohio State University called ants impressive mechanical systems. The miniature creatures can carry up to 5,000 times their body weight, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And when's the last time you saw a human farmer carting bossy around on his back? Good point. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that incredible? That is amazing. (laughs) I had no idea. Farmer ants. Man, that, 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 boy. I, I am never going to think of ant farm in quite the same way ever again. Yeah, that's, see what I mean? <laughs> that is amazing. Ants have also adapted some of the most violent and painful defense mechanisms in all the animal kingdom. And now we have to play the, the bumper. Yes. Ooh, I don't feel too well. I'm feeling strange in the jungle. Ooh, I don't feel too well. What could it be? Could it be an animal? If it bit you on the leg, then it's pandemus. If you ate it for lunch, then it's poisonous. If it bit you on the leg, then it's pandemus. If you ate it for lunch, then it's poisonous. Well, it bit me, so I put it back. Call an ambulance, I've got a heart attack. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, it bit me, so I bit it back. <laughs> I love that so much. 
So as you heard at the beginning of the show from Sir David Attenborough, they defend themselves with their mandibles and with a substance in their venom called formic acid. Now, formic acid in low concentrations is actually pretty useful. Humans use formic acid as a preservative since it's antibacterial. And if you happen to eat or drink anything with aspartame in it, guess what? Your body is converting that sweetener into formic acid, so you're actually carrying it around in your body. Yeah, but now, I mean, it's not like it's harmful. So. No, it's really, really diluted, and it's not going to hurt you at all. Yeah. But at higher concentrations, this acid can cause irritation to skin and eyes, and it's these higher concentrations that ants produce to defend themselves with. Right. So woodland ants will spray this acid out of their abdomens, as you heard in the beginning. So when a group of woodland ants feels threatened by a bird or an insect or anything else that might want to eat them, they'll spray this acid directly up in the air from their abdomens. Right. This works really well against other insects, but birds, this is a little side note, particularly corvids, will harass these ants to coat their feathers in the formic acid, and that helps kill the parasites in their feathers. So ravens and crows and jackdaws will do this all the time. The yeah. birds, they'll get bitten by the ants in the process, but it's still pretty cool. <laughs> Here in Florida, we have the red imported fire ant, which is yet another invasive species that we have down here. Right. They also use formic acid. So if they feel threatened, several soldier ants will swarm the threat. One of the ants will release a pheromone that tells the other ants to bite. <laughs> And they basically all bite and sting at the same time, injecting formic acid through a stinger directly into the threat. And anyone that lives in Florida for any length of time has had the experience of standing out in their yard and realizing too late that they have fire ants all over their feet. Oh, dear. Oh, it's, yeah, it's too late. Once you feel the first bite, they all start biting and you look down and there's 25 ants on your feet. And you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And if you're allergic, it's really, really bad. The stings leave very, very itchy red welts with a small blister right at the site of the sting. Right. And they're bad. And they're everywhere down here. So that means they are venomous, venomous, venomous. Yes. The bullet ant that that I mentioned in the beginning is widely regarded to have the most painful sting of any insect in the world. Ooh. That sounds like a good reason not to go near them. Yes, there was an entomologist called Justin Schmidt, and he created the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. Why, I don't know, but it rates the relative pain caused by insect stings on a scale of 1 to 4. So Schmidt allowed himself to be stung by various insects, and he always included a brief description of his experience being stung by each type of insect. So it's a scale of 1 to 4, and the bullet ant got a 4+. plus. Now, it seems like he could have added a number another number onto the scale. Like, you're making the scale, dude. Like, numbers are free. Just tack a 5 on there. But it, still, bullet ants are a 4+. plus. <laughs> Schmidt described the sting as pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a 3-inch nail embedded in your heel. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's unpleasant. <laughs> Bullet ants pretty much defend themselves just like fire ants. They grab with their mandibles and they'll inject their venom through a stinger. Now, they're not injecting formic acid. They're injecting paneratoxin. And this is a neurotoxin that essentially interferes with the nerve cell's ability to send electrical signals back and forth. And when you mess with nerves and nerve cells, you get pain or even paralysis. In fact, there's kind of a fine line that exists between pain and numbness, and we've all experienced this when our leg or our foot or our hand falls asleep. It might be numb, 
and yet you still feel those pins and needles, and sometimes they can actually hurt. And that's kind of unpleasant, right? Yeah, that's neuro- That's called uh, that's neuropathy. You know, yeah. When we experience that because of blood, like you're saying, you've, you've, your hand has fallen asleep because the circulation has been cut off for a short period of time or whatever. That's, that's a kind of neuropathy, and that's what people like me deal with all the time. Yeah, it's no fun. Yeah. So a bullet ant sting is just like this, but it's way, way more intense with some lovely side effects like cold sweats, nausea, vomiting, fainting, and even abnormal heart rhythms, and the pain can last up to 24 hours from one sting. Hmm. There are videos online of people letting themselves get stung by bullet ants, and I don't know how much they're hamming it up for the camera, but in all these videos they are absolutely incapacitated from this sting. Right. Real bad. I'm sorry, that's actually called paresthesia, but it's it's like neuropathy. So. Is that the pins and needles in your foot uh-huh. when, you're, when yeah. it falls asleep? Paresthesia and neuropathy, so it's... Numbness is caused by both of those things, but essentially they feel about the same. So, Yeah, that's not good. If you know somebody that says that they have neuropathy, that's what they're experiencing a lot of the time. Oof. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah. Disclaimer time! The Vomits Podcast knows it's not fair to compare animal intelligence to human intelligence. But then, Donna and Paul only have the yardstick of themselves, so... They're going to do it anyway. We're going to do it anyway. Mm. Intelligence on a scale of 1 to 10. What do you think? Well, I think we've run into the first animal that we've talked about on the show where we run into the problem, the biggest problem about animal intelligence is defining terms. Like, what do we actually even mean, right? Sure. This is a different kind of intelligence altogether. This is collective intelligence. I remember watching a, or listening to a Radiolab episode where a scientist was talking about um, her studies of ants, and together as a colony, she feels like they were really, really super, super intelligent, but individually quite stupid. <laughs> she said she saw one ant trying to move a stick for like 20 minutes before she finally just picked him up and dropped him back with the rest of them. So um, they seem to be able to problem solve together in ways that are pretty darn smart, but individually not so much. So we don't really understand collective intelligence systems very well. Um, It doesn't seem like it even belongs on the same scale, so I'll say that. But if you put an ant colony against a raven, I think they'd be in big trouble, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There was an article in Scientific American that indicated that single ants might be able to do a little problem solving on their own though as far as like getting lost and, and finding their way back to the colony yeah yeah it seems like they have some sort of maybe short-term memory that allows them to sort of backtrack and help them get back to the rest of the ants yeah and that's probably heavily based on scent and that helps their memory but right. uh and they can do math and stuff really well so yeah for sure i gave them a five yeah i mean i feel like Again, I don't even think they sh- they belong on the same scale. I think we should really, to be fair, have a totally a totally different scale for collective intelligence. <laughs> but because um, people don't understand it very well, and I know I don't understand it very well, but uh, I would say yeah, probably in in the five or six area. Well, if there are smart. ten collectively and there are one individually, then that kind of mm-hmm. averages out to five. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe <laughs> I'd give them a two individually just because I'm like, thinking of critters that I would give a one. <laughs> like, I think they're a little smaller or a little smarter than some of the other critters that I've mentally given a one. So, yeah. Yeah. But as for collective intelligence, if we're going to the other scale, which doesn't include our kind of intelligence, um, but only applies to insect type of intelligence, then they're probably, in the group that doesn't include us, I think they're probably a 9 or a 10. So. Fair enough. Yeah. They are super, super smarty pants for, for bugs. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to talk about ants and pop culture and a couple other things, but we're going to do that right after this. Hey, are you a jock that likes comics? Are you a nerd that likes comics? Do you feel left out sometimes? Well, then we've got the show for you. I'm Imran. And I'm Anthony. He's the jock. And he's the nerd. And we host the Jock and Nerd podcast at jockandnerd.com. If you're looking for fun, entertaining, laugh-out-loud geek chat over all the latest Marvel, DC shows, and news, visit jockandnerd.com. Full spoiler podcast, lots of swearing. Uh, you're such a jock. You're such a nerd. Oh, come on. Shut up, nerd. Okay. Well, this here's animal rancher and expert at large, Cotton Shorts. You know Paul and Don are just a couple of nerds like you, and they don't usually get to see animals in the wild. But so we'll talk about where they usually do get to see them, which is to say on popular culture, books, movies, television, and video games. So today we're going to, I know it's really weird for us to not talk about the ant and wasp, the the Ant-Man, because Marvel stuff in theaters, like right now as we're recording this. <laughs> yeah. But we didn't. We chose to talk about something else because it's because it's a funny and kind of a weird story. So yeah, I'm going to just briefly restate some stuff about A Bug's Life, which is a film that we've covered before in our Butterflies episode because of Heimlich. But I'm just going to say just tell you generally what it was. It was a 1998 computer animated Disney Pixar film directed by Andrew Stanton and John Lasseter. It is loosely inspired by the fable The Ant and the Grasshopper and the classic samurai film The Seven Samurai. It is the second Pixar movie ever and tells the story of an outcast inventor ant named Flick, played by Dave Foley, who recruits a group of circus bugs he mistakes for warriors when his colony is threatened by a group of grasshoppers. <laughs> Every year, the colony of ants is expected to harvest food for a biker gang-like bunch of greedy grasshoppers, and Flick is an inventor whose creations usually do more harm than good. While he's trying out a mechanical harvester, he drops his machine and it goes on autopilot and knocks a pile of food into the stream just before the mean grasshoppers arrive, and then just hijinks go from there. They have to save the day and defeat the evil grasshoppers, and there is a lot of really funny and also heartwarming and cute stuff in between. So they have a queen in their colony who is played by the late and much lamented, for me, Phyllis Diller. And they have Princess Ada, who is the queen's daughter, who she's training, and that's she is voiced by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And there's just all, this thing is full of all sorts of big stars, and it's fabulous. There's Madeline Kahn in there, and David Hyde Pierce plays a stick bug. It's just fabulous. Dennis Leary, really, really fun movie. If you haven't seen it, what planet are you living on? I mean, this (laughs) was a really big deal that year. But, so here's a little 
a little piece, a little clip of the ants sort of trying to figure out how they're going to solve their problem, and the queen is basically telling them to relax. Good job, everybody! Oh, my, there's quite a gap, Mr. Soil. Shouldn't we tell the queen? I don't think we need to involve the queen in this. She's got enough on her plate already. Training her daughter. Oh, yes, Princess Ada, the poor dear. Winds died down. They'll be here soon. Just be confident, dear. You'll be fine. Ah! There's a gap. There's a gap in the line. What are we going to do? It's okay, Your Highness. Gaps happen. We just lost a few inches, that's all. Oh, right. Your Highness, I can't count when you hover like that. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Guys, go shade someone else for a while. <laughs> okay, Anna. Now, what do we do? Uh... Oh, don't tell me. I know it. I know it. What is it? We relax. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, it'll be fine. It's the same year after year. They come, they eat, they leave. That's our lot in life. It's not a lot, but it's our life. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that right, Avi? Oh, you're such a cute little aphid. <laughs> In this version, the aphid is actually more like a dog than a cow yes. in this in this movie. But uh, really cute, adorable movie. <laughs> it sure is. So. About two months before A Bug's Life came out, there was a movie from DreamWorks called Ants with a mm-hmm. Z. And this was DreamWorks' first animated film. Right. The cast for the voice talent for this film is also amazing. They got Gene Hackman, Sharon Stone, Sylvester Stallone... Christopher Walken, Dan Aykroyd, and Danny Glover. Those people all lent their voices to this movie. It's the story of a worker ant named Z4195, or just Z for short, who falls in love with Princess Bala of the colony, who just wants a normal life. Z unwittingly becomes a war hero, which slows down productivity in the colony, and Z and Bala find themselves together, and after some misadventures, they find Insectopia, which is a giant garbage can overfilled with decaying food, <laughs> Bala is kidnapped and taken back to the colony, and Z has to save her, and the colony has to deal with some flooding. There's a bad guy called Mandible, and Z has to be the hero to win the princess's hand and save the day and make a colony a better place. Gosh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, I, well, critically and financially, Ants did pretty well. It was nominated for a handful of awards, and it had a few video games based on the movie. It almost had a sequel. Yeah, but why is that? Why were there two animated ant movies in 1998? Hmm, I bet there's some sort of scandal behind this. That is the interesting thing about it. So, about 10 years earlier, Walt Disney Feature Animation was pitched a movie called Army Ants, which was about a pacifist worker ant in a militaristic colony. A guy called Jeffrey Katzenberg, at the time he was the chairman of Disney's film division, he got in a feud with CEO Michael Eisner over a vacant president position. So Katzenberg left. He teamed up with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen, and those three founded DreamWorks. Katzenberg said, hey, we were working on a cool idea for a movie about ants, so why don't we do that, allegedly? So they did, and they started production in May 1996. Pixar was already a thing, and when they heard about this, they were kind of not thrilled, because they were also pursuing this story of this oddball worker ant who struggles to win the princess's hand, and their project was called Bugs. Mm -hmm. So after Katzenberg left Disney, he would keep in touch with John Lasseter, because they were friends, and, and he directed A Bug's Life, and he would check up on John Lasseter, and he would kind of pry him with questions about the Bugs project and when the movie would be released. Right. 
So Lassiter, eventually, he realized what was going on, and he confronted Katzenberg about it. And so he had to give the news to the Pixar employees, but he, he managed to keep morale high, and of course, he finished The Bug's Life. But that was the beginning of a really, really bitter competitive rivalry between Disney and DreamWorks. Mm -hmm. So the two studios were constantly changing release dates. They were constantly competing with one another. And when it came to Ants and A Bug's Life, it got really, really ugly. And so Ants wound up being released about two months before A Bug's Life. They are two very, very, very different movies. At the time of this recording, Ants is on Netflix, and I actually watched it the other night. A Bug's Life is not available streaming that I could tell. So I've seen both. I prefer A Bug's Life. A Bug's Life actually wound up doing better at the box office uh, than Ants did. Although Ants got better reviews, and they actually have a higher percentage on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, with critics, but not with, with the public. Right. Yeah. yeah, I everything about A Bug's Life is is better to me. Like I I like that movie a lot more. Yeah, I I actually did see one reviewer who said that Ants was more aesthetically pleasing and I just thought, well, I guess if you like red and brown, I don't know how <laughs> that would be the case and I think they look creepy. So It's kind of like the difference between Marvel and DC movies. Like DC movies are a lot darker than yeah. Marvel movies and Marvel movies tend to have a little more humor. Uh-huh. Yep, that's exactly that's exactly it. You pinned it. You nailed the difference right there. The color palette is stronger. It's more varied. It's brighter, and it's got more humor. And um, the ants was darker, and the subject matter was addressed in a little bit darker way, I think. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're very different projects. So. Very different. I remember in 1998 when these movies came out. And we, our kids were really little. My wife and I were really confused. Like, why are they releasing two animated movies about ants at the same time? And then we would have friends that said, oh, we went and saw that ants movie and we really liked it. And we would have to ask them, was it the one ants movie or the Pixar ants movie? <laughs> you know? I never even went to see the ants one in the theater. I don't even think it even crossed my mind to go and see it. I don't even remember considering seeing it. We just, the Bugs Life thing came out and we were like, hey, those Toy Story people did another movie. Let's go yeah. see it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, hey, are you going to eat that? You gonna eat those ants, Donna? No, no. I've had ants in chocolate, and they just taste like Rice Krispie. So I don't know why you would bother when there's just <laughs> Rice Krispies right there. So ants are really small, though. I wonder how you could even detect that there was an ant in the chocolate. They're crunchy. Are they crunchy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it would take a lot of them to fill you up. Yeah, it probably would. For yeah. sure. And I'm not an anteater, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found this little article on MotherEarthNews.com. It's by a guy called Miles Olson. And I just, I, I want to read this because it's so funny. <laughs> he says, answer the first wild animal I ever killed and ate at the age of four. <laughs> <laughs> Most ant species are edible. Their flavor is pleasantly sour. This is because ants secrete an acid when threatened, giving them a vinegar-like flavor. In Colombia, ants are roasted with salt, crunchy salt and vinegar ants, and eaten at feasts. The queen ants are preferred there having big juicy butts, mm. more fat. And in Colombian folk culture, queen ants are said to boost libido. Mm. He says ant larvae are also fantastic having no sour flavor. 
They can often be found in clumps under rocks or on top of anthills when they are being moved or kept warm. Hmm. Yeah, I think if we were meant to eat ants, we would already be eating them. <laughs> it doesn't seem that easy to me for us to eat ants, and I don't. I kind of don't see the point, you know? Yeah, also they sting. Like, they sting really bad. Yeah, yeah, I don't... I don't get it. So yeah, there's a lot of people that are like, "Oh, well, there's so much protein in insects, and we should be eating that instead of the protein sources that we do eat." And I'm sure that they're correct, but I I also feel like people are going to have to be pretty hungry before they start eating ants, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in general. <laughs> Just in oh. general. <laughs> Obviously, people in Colombia eat them, and I'm sure that they enjoy them. But it, it, at feasts, that sounds like a specialty, like a like a delicacy thing, not an everyday. Yeah, that's a lot of ants too. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. Once again, I am an American, and this sounds weird to me. <laughs> 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 but I did try them. Like I said, I tried ant, ants in chocolate, and I didn't understand why we were doing that. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, hello, Paula Donna. I've been meaning to ask you: Is your brain a repository of useless information like mine is? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, let's help you win that next trivia night, or just sound smarter than the rest of the room with the animal fact of the week. Back to you, amigos. <laughs> <laughs> Donna, yeah. do you know what a formicarium is? No. Well, it's a thing that I always wanted when I was a kid, but my mom wouldn't let me have one because she did not want to she did not want to intentionally introduce insects into the house. Oh my gosh, how terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a formicarium is the technical name for an ant farm. Hmm. So the ant farm has been around for about a hundred years. It was invented in the year 1900 by Charles Janet, who is a French entomologist and polymath. And he had the idea of reducing the three dimensions of an ant nest to the virtual two dimensions between two panes of glass. He never attempted to market or obtain a patent for the ant farm. And in 1929, the first commercially sold ant farm was sold. And in 1956, Milton Levine, founder of Uncle Milton Industries, created his own version of a formicarium. He got the idea when he attended a 4th of July picnic and then he registered the term ant farm for his product and registered it as a trademark. So if you use the term ant farm in a piece of commercial work, lawyers will come after you, as the comic strip Dilbert found out the hard way a few years ago. So you have to be real careful about calling anything an ant farm, hmm. even in a comic strip. Ah, well, what if it's a farm that's run by ants? I, yeah, I guess you have to be careful. You have to call it uh, farmer, farmer Ants Home. <laughs> I don't know. Ant work colony. Oh, no, that sounds... That doesn't sound good. No. No. <laughs> you can call it the Ant Ranch. Because they ranch. have livestock, too. So. There it is. Ant Ranch. We figured it out. Yeah. You can still buy ant farms. They are sold as an educational toy. They are made out of plastic or, or glass with just enough space in between so that you can see all the tunnels and chambers that the ants dig for themselves. The substrate for the ants is either a special type of tunneling sand or a gel. So if you get the sand ones, you have to feed the ants sugar water. But if you get the gel, they can tunnel in that and they can eat that. It has nutrients in it. And they all come with a voucher for the ants, which are mailed to you. 
So hmm. only worker ants are mailed. It's actually illegal to ship queen ants through the mail. So the ants will eventually die and you either have to throw the ant farm out or you just have to get new ants. I don't know why this surprised me, but there are very, very serious ant keepers in the world. Hmm. Do not call what they have an ant farm because they will correct you. <laughs> it's a formicarium. Because they don't want to get sued. They don't want to get sued, but they take it very, very seriously. Sure they do. I'm oh, sure. yeah. Professionally built formicaria are designed to house queen ants. Mm. And where do they get their queen ant? Do they go out in the wild and capture it? Well, I'm glad you asked. They do that, or there are professional ant shops and suppliers that usually sell entire colonies of ants with queens. Because hmm. they grow them there on site. Correct. Mm -hmm. That's right. I finally bought my aunt, my own kids an ant farm when they were little, and I kind of bought it for myself, too, and it was a lot of fun. Mm. It was really relaxing and satisfying to watch them. Yeah, but the problem is that if it breaks, then you've got ants, you know? Right, and I think that's what my mom was worried about. I would be, too. I'm on her side in this. I, there's no <laughs> way that I would get my kids an ant farm. I would be like, nope, forget it. <laughs> I would be mean I would be a mean mom I would say no <laughs> I bought my kids an ant farm because I was not allowed to have an ant farm <laughs> I'm glad it never broke because then you would have then you would have been like oh no <laughs> I don't I don't think it broke I don't remember what happened to it I think all the ants died in it and I didn't have the little form to send out for new ants mm -hmm. so I just emptied the sand outside and I think I just threw it away yeah. But it was fun while it sense. lasted. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, if you had any stragglers that were left over with a little... If you're, you uh, threw them out in the trash can, they probably picked your ant farm up on their back and went and started a new colony. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that ants are super strong? They are. They're like super, super strong. But they're also, I bet, much stronger than you think they are. Well, I remember on the cartoons when I was a kid that they would invade picnics and they would like one ant would carry a whole pie away. Yeah, you remember or the like ant a from Aardvark? We talked about them on the Aardvark show. Right. Yeah, he would do that. He would pick up a whole, like a whole piece of fruit. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a whole watermelon. So probably not that much, but new research published in 2014 showed that the neck joint of a common field ant can withstand 5,000 times the ant's weight. Wow. Previously, they'd been photographed carrying dead baby birds, so it was estimated they could carry around 1,000 1, times their weight. But the new numbers surprised even the researchers. We guessed that the ants could withstand about 1,000 times their weight, so we figured we'd start there, said Carlos Castro, a mechanical and aerospace engineer at The Ohio State University in Columbus. Initially, we didn't think that this ant had any extreme capabilities, but they surprised us. Testing the ant's strength involved extreme and destructive measures. He and his colleague anesthetized the common field ants and glued their heads to a centrifuge about oh, no. the size of a compact disc. Oh, and as no. the disc spun faster and faster, forces applied to the ants increased until their necks deformed and their heads separated from their bodies oh, at the tiny neck joint, no. which sounds really horrible. No. <laughs> We had to put a plexiglass barrier around the centrifuge to protect the grad students, said Castro, because the <laughs> ant bodies would go flying at the moment of rupture. The ants' necks ruptured when the centrifuge applied forces of 3,400 to 5,000 times their average body weight. 
In addition to the centrifugal studies, Castro used microcomputed tomography to reconstruct a 3D model of the ant's neck joint. He found that the surface of the ant's neck had a microstructure of bumps and folds that helped the ants shoulder large loads. From a material standpoint, we found that the properties themselves are similar to other insects. We think it's the design rather than the material that helps the ants. So this Look. was a sort of a, you know, it's an unfortunate way to get at the figure, but not that many ants were had to die, and they all died for science. So, okay. And just remember that you also oh. stomped on them probably this morning. So, <laughs> <laughs> And if you saw one in your kitchen, you would probably stomp on it. So let's not get judgmental. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I guess there was no easier way to do it. Um... I think that it's probably not that hard to, I mean, I don't know. I don't I'm know. Just, I, I'm just I, picturing I grad students getting sprayed with ant bodies and them saying, oh, you know what? Maybe we should put a piece of plexiglass in between the <laughs> ants and the students. <laughs> so Karen Mahl, a biologist and researcher at University College in Freiburg in Germany, was not involved in the research, but she said that the 5,000 mark is impressive, but that doesn't necessarily mean the ants could lift that amount. The authors showed that the ants could hold that amount, but this situation is different than carrying a load, and loads that are actually carried are usually much smaller. At the University of Glasgow, they studied the sticky pads on the ants' feet, adding that the lifting large weights is problematic for several reasons, including muscle strength, the structural stiffness and balance. And he said, muscle strength is not often a problem as smaller animals have relatively more muscle strength to their body weight compared to larger animals. Right. But still, balancing the weights is a big problem. First, ants have to lever off the weights from the ground, which is a tricky business if items are oddly shaped or heavy. Then balancing the item overhead when walking, it is also very tricky to avoid falling over. Mike Kaspari, a biologist from the University of Oklahoma, said that microbiotics, the blending of biology and engineering to build tiny, semi-smart animatrons, is one of the most exciting new technologies. The hope is that these cheap microbots can explore, monitor, and fix our environment, as well as perform other tasks through sheer force of numbers. This is another lovely example of how engineers look at the ant to inspire their designs. Castro said that the research could be applied to creating robots that can lift and carry more efficiently, taking a nod from the ant's hybrid soft and hard components. Researchers could also create better composite materials, and he plans to study more ants from a mechanical point of view by looking at their musculature and different roles within the same species. So just remember, sometimes you got to do kind of icky stuff for science, but they, the little ants died in the name of progress. So We could have really neat tiny robots to fix all sorts of problems that we really need to fix because of the sacrifice these tiny ants made. So thank you, tiny ants. Thank you, tiny ants. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. This show has been brought to you with technical support by Matthew Chomo, bed music by Kevin McLeod. Our logo was made by Imran Javed. And our vocal talent, Carrie McGinnis, Chris Brayton, Josh Hallmark, Andrea Freitas, Chris Green, Stacy and Frosty. And thank you to you, the Patreon supporter and the Tee Public Shopper. We do appreciate Every little bit you give us, it, it really, really does help. So thank you. Okay, so we just want to wrap up the show and also thank everybody that helped us while you were on vacation. Stacy, Josh, Megan, Chris, um, Susie, 
You guys are all wonderful. And we've got a couple of other shows that we're going to run with people who helped us that we're going to acknowledge that right now because you're going again for a couple of weeks in August on vacation. So right. it's going to be a bu- busy traveling and, and uh, being off summer for you there, Paul. So. Yep. <laughs> so Carrie and Laura, those episodes will play when you are gone next time. And we just want to thank everybody for helping out because we really, really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, it was really cool. All right, and it's now time for the Rugrat Corner. If you have a Rugrat age, eight years of age, if you have a Rugrat eight years of age or younger who wants to be on our podcast, send us a message on Facebook or email us at varmanspodcast at gmail.com for details. We'll make it super easy for you and your Rugrat to hear their voice in the podcast. So let's listen to the Rugrat. Yes, this is Kellen. Kellen has something to say about ants. Ants can lift 20 pounds, 20 something, the weight <laughs> off their way or something. Um, and they don't have lungs. And then, if there's ants in your house, says them outside. Yes. Okay, tell it to get out of here. Get out of here. That's not right. <laughs> Try it again, honey. Get out of here. Right, get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> Thanks. They don't have lungs. No. I didn't. We didn't. We 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 missed that one. So thank you, Kellen. <laughs> they don't have lungs, really. They don't have lungs. That's what she said. Hmm, let's look that up. Not that we want to deny her on the show. I'd just like to be... I'm curious. Do ants have lungs? Ants do not have lungs. She was right. I'd want to know how they get their oxygen. Our Rugrat is absolutely correct, and we'll just talk about it now because we're probably not going to have another ants show. They do not have lungs. Oxygen enters through tiny holes all over their body, and carbon dioxide leaves through the same holes. They have no blood vessels. The there you go. is a long tube that punk- pumps colorless blood from the head back to the rear and back up to the head again. <laughs> thank you for giving us an extra fact. That was awesome. Thank you, Kellen. And mm-hmm. thank you to her dad, Tori, for providing us that audio. We really do appreciate it. And go out and buy that kid an ant farm. No, don't. Because if it breaks, <laughs> you'll have ants all over your house. Oh, come on. No. <laughs> Get goldfish instead. At least if the tank breaks, they don't infest your whole house. thanks everybody again for listening we love you and until next time be nice to animals (laughs) except when you need to not be nice for science and if they're just insects (laughs) just pull their heads right off it's okay (laughs) thank you tiny (laughs) ants You've been listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios.